Hi everyone, I'm Lucas Mack and welcome to another episode of The Golden Rule Revolution, where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. Today I am honored to bring to you a husband, a father, a business executive, a speaker, an author, and someone that is truly transforming lives through the business community and how business leaders treat their employees and create cultures based on health versus fear, intimidation, and all the things that no one likes. So please welcome Bobby Herrera. Bobby, thank you so much for joining the Golden Rule Revolution. Yeah, let's do some good. I'm excited (laughs) to be here. Can't think of a better way to end the week. Oh man, thank you. So let's start off your story. Where, where did you come from and grow up? Well, I was a kid born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. Lucas, I grew up in southeastern New Mexico, small uh, ranching farming community. I grew up in a migrant farm working family. And you know, that, adjour- that journey eventually led me to raising my hand and joining the army, mm-hmm. one of the best decisions of my life. And then after that, you know, I left the military and went back to school. And after that, I started my professional journey as my frontal lobe was still developing. Mm. And, you know, eventually that led to me starting my entrepreneurial career and yeah, the journey of growth and uh, the theme of struggle has been a consistent part of my journey through it, every one of those chapters and undoubtedly mm. will we'll continue and I'll just keep uh, doing my best. What was it that, I mean, how did growing up in a small town then join in the army which is the antithesis of small anything. <laughs> and you're part of this great structure, culture, discipline, all the, all these things that the military brings. What led you to that? Well, you know, I joined the army, um, for two reasons. One, I always had this overwhelming desire to serve. It was just in me. You know, I was always one of those kids that, for some reason, when chaos happened, I ran towards it instead of running away from it. Mm. And I think a lot of soldiers will tell you they, they're intuitively wired that way. However, I also raised my hand because, you know, I'm one of 13 kids. Wow. I have seven brothers, five sisters. And I was the first one born in the U.S. Wow. And at a very young age, my dad used to tell me stories about, you know, his desire when he was a young man to join the military in Mexico, Mm. but family hardship struck. He wasn't able to do so. uh, And that, you know, catapulted him into more struggle. And he would tell me these stories as I was growing up. And every time that I heard that story, Lucas, his, I I could feel this hole that he had in his heart. Mm. And the day that I turned 18, I, had the recruiter pick me up outside of the gym door. I didn't tell anybody. I swore a few people to secrecy. <laughs> and then I came back the next day and uh, my dad, they had no idea where I was. And I remember walking in the front door and I, I laid the uh, army contract on the table, this folder that I had. And my dad, he was ready to let me have it. Mm. And he asked me, son, what, what, uh, what is that? And I said, dad, I, I joined the army. Mm. And he immediately softened. 
he turned around, he walked towards the window and I could see as he was looking out, I could see his shoulders shaking a little bit. Mm. It was the second time in my life that I'd seen my father cry. Mm. So that's a, you know, the biggest driver for me raising my hand to go from that small town environment to join the army was to feel the, do- the hole that my dad had in his heart. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Yes. Did, let's talk about being one of 13 kids. I come from a family <laughs> that um, is also has a uh, big family, that same number my, on my dad's side. What, what was that like for you growing up with that many siblings and not only feeling the attention from your parents, but you know, what was that like where you felt a sense of belonging? You know, it, uh, growing up, I thought, yeah, I didn't think anything different. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife will still tell you that, Hey, I still eat with my elbows on the table because I've been protecting my food my whole <laughs> life. Right. So Good, yeah. anytime we have a meal together, watch out. I will still <laughs> You know, I, you know, I'm number 11 mm. and you know, so I grew up in an environment where I was always studying my siblings and I had some great role models. I had some reverse role models. I mean, mm. what's that? One of my favorite quotes is siblings, they're the enemy you can't live without. And <laughs> that's good. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from watching their choices growing up, uh, but we grew up in a home that's actually smaller than the barn that I work out of here. Wow. And, you know, we were, had a very modest, humble upbringing, but we were doing the best we could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many lessons that I learned from being in that environment of all of us having to contribute. Everyone knew their part. Everyone knew their role. Um, but at the same time, it also, you know, what, what a course in negotiation having to argue with your siblings every day and not knowing which one was going to come at you, right? Right, uh, right. Yeah, so many more benefits now than, you know, all the pressures that we felt from the struggle then. But when you're in it, you don't, you don't see those gifts, right? Right, right. Do you, um, how did you, being one of the youngest, obviously, and even my wife and I, we have three kids. I, I know, I see that you have three kids on your website. You know, the, the firstborn gets the... Uh, it's the real, real trials and tribulations of the parents. By the by, the third kid, we're like, okay, you know, like figure it's they treat it. We you know love them equally, but we grow as parents, I think. And how did you see how your older siblings were treated as being children of one and thirteen versus you coming at the end and maybe having a softer experience? Yeah. You know, siblings, they always, you know, they always give me a hard time. They're like, Oh, you didn't have it as hard as I did. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you dad did, you know, well, of course, Hey, we make all our big mistakes with our first kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then by that time, our third or fourth or whatever, we realize, yeah, they're not going to break. Yeah. It's us, not them. Right. And you learn to, you know, guide them with more compassion and patience. But you know, by the time you got to me at number 11, an interesting dynamic had evolved because a lot of my older siblings were ha- helping my parents raise me mm. and, you know, very traditional conventional Mexican family. And like one of our family lore stories, like our sisters would take us out on their dates and cause my dad didn't trust any boys with them and they'd have to be back at a certain <laughs> time. And, 
it, it's an interesting dynamic going back, but the stories that came from it, uh, I actually was a pretty mischievous kid. I thought that my role in the family was to figure out something that my mom and dad had yet to see and, <laughs> and, and surprise them with it. And you named the boundary, I pole vaulted right over it, which I think was good training for my future entrepreneurial career. That's well, you certainly did it at 18 <laughs> years old coming home and sur- surprising them with the enlistment. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I w- and I was the first one that had joined the military. So, you know, I, I found my way to surprise them several times. Yeah. And <laughs> That's good. The, the beauty of it now is, you know, my three coconuts were paying it forward. And hmm. my dad had a saying when we were growing up, anytime I got in trouble, he'd say in Spanish, he'd say, mijo, hijo eres papá serás, which means a son you are, a dad you'll be. You'll get yours. <laughs> he said good. that to me every time I got in trouble, Lucas. And you are, a dad you'll be. That's good. Well, tell me, oh, sorry, brother. Um, you have had a, um, I mean, I, I want to get into the struggle, the overcoming, yeah. the, the sense of adversity, but let's talk more about from, from enlisting mm-hmm. to where you are today and, and that journey. Yeah, you know, while while ago, I think you asked me a little bit about the transition from growing up in a, as a small town kid to, to the rigor and structure of the army. Uh, that was a hard, interesting transition on some facets. You know, I'm, you know, like one, I started meeting kids who grew up on the streets of Philadelphia or New York and all walks of life. So I was immediately thrown into this melting pot where you had to work together regardless of what you thought or what you felt like we were on one mission. Yeah. So man, the wealth of education that that gives young men and women that join the forces. But, um, you know, and then on the other hand, I remember in basic training having to get up at the wee hours of the morning and, you know, do your physical training and, you know, you get into these days that had no end in sight. Well, I had the different perspective than a lot of these other soldiers because I'd been working in the fields my whole life. Mm. So I'm thinking, okay, 4.30, that's, you know, I've been getting up at five almost my whole life since I was going to be in fourth grade. So, you know, there were other things that really set me up for it. Uh, And I think a lot of young men and women that join the military probably have a pretty good diverse mix of those historical experiences that, you know, when you put them together, the whole mission of the military in the beginning is to build trust and mm-hmm. you to build trust quickly, which is what belonging is all about. Right. right. So, right. yeah, that was an interesting, interesting dynamic packed with lessons that we could talk about for days. Wow. Um, where, where did you go? So um, once you enlist, where was your basic training and, and what did you end up doing while you served? Well, I was in, uh, I started the military journey in Fort Sale, Oklahoma. Mm. And then from there, I went to beautiful Fort Polk, Louisiana, which anyone who's a soldier that's been there knows that I'm being incredibly sarcastic. Um, (laughs) They call it Fort Puke in the military. And uh, it was my first introduction to humidity growing up in the desert of New Mexico. Yeah. I did a little bit of a, I did a short assignment in uh, Fort Richardson, Anchorage, Alaska, which was uh, an incredible experience. Uh, Most fun I never want to have again. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, so that, that, that was the triangle that my military journey took me through. And, um, you know, I was actually in during the time right before the Gulf war, as I was getting out, uh, Panama happened, which, you know, was a, a two day mission. And then, right. um, while I was in the guard during college, we had the Gulf war. So how have you taken what you learned in the military and also being one of 13 kids of adapting and accommodating. And how have you taken that to your professional career and helping companies today? Uh, wow. Countless ways. Uh, I mean, I think a couple of standout examples, um, you know, when you grow up in a large family like that, specifically one that was a written, uh, like, yeah, we, we were growing up, we were like one of the only, uh, Mexican families, a few other ones. And then I was, you know, we were a migrant farm working family going to different States. And, you know, the, the, although it wasn't uncommon, I call it the invisible workforce. Like there were hmm. thousands of families, thousands of people doing backbreaking work, working in the fields. It wasn't as commonly known back then when I was growing up as it is now, hmm. although it still happens very frequently. So all those lessons that I learned through that journey and then that experience that I had in the military that I explained there subtly, like you take all those that really what they teach you, if I had to boil it down to like one simple palatable phrase, what it really taught me as to be a better human being, to be a better leader was, hey, these great people that I serve and that I'm surrounding myself with, they're the same kind of different as me. Hmm. They all want their story to matter. They all want to be the best version of themselves. They're all climbing their own mountain. They all want for the people that they care for to love them, to be proud of them. And so, you know, I reflect on some of those hardships and those lessons that I learned throughout those two journeys. And I'm so grateful for them now. Hmm. But, you know, when you're in the mix of it, you don't think about that stuff. And there's a lot of young men and women that are going through that same journey now that uh, like, I want to help them see some of that struggle that they're going through and reframe it the way that I was able to so that they can see the gift that it's delivering for them. Hmm. Like, hey, maybe it's part of the plan. That's good. That's right. That, that leads me to asking about the book. So the gift of struggle. It's a great title. Thank you. How, what was the point where you said, okay, I have something to say and I want to put it in book format? Well, writing a book wasn't on my list, Lucas. You know, I uh, think we were talking before, you know, we started the show. Like I moved to Portland, bought a farm to lay low. Mm. And, you know, yeah, I wanted my kids to grow up in the dirt, but I'm a pretty introverted guy. And, you know, I hadn't really built yeah, I'd built a pretty large organization, populist group. Uh, we've done a lot of good in the world and helped a lot of people, but I don't get out much. Mm. And where I did get out though, very intentionally is I did a lot of storytelling and I do a lot of storytelling for kids who are born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide like me mm. and for veterans, specifically veteran entrepreneurs. And it was through that journey that some, you know, people that I respected, that either heard me speak or they learned about my story that they just kept encouraging me. And finally, when it 
came to a point of doing it, I reached out to get some good advice from some of these people. And in the end, the book that I wrote, very simply put, I wrote it for two reasons. One, I wrote it to give. Mm. And two, I wrote the book that I wish someone would have written for me as I was starting my leadership journey. Mm. It gave me permission to lead with my heart. Because I believe that the need for compassionate leadership has never been greater than it is today. Mm. That's just a very strong opinion I have based on how I see people feel in organizations. I think now more than ever, young men and women want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They want to be a part of a purpose-driven organization. And the only way that we can give that to them is by leading with our heart. Mm. And really being an authentic leader who isn't afraid to be AKA that vulnerable hero yeah. that shows them their imperfections and says, Hey, it's okay. Yes. Like it's yes. okay to do that. Matter of fact, we should all be doing this. Right. Yeah. In Would fact, let me take my mask off. Let me show exactly. you. Exactly. I, you know, what's interesting. I love the word in Hebrew for, for love is a Hava. And that means to give. So anytime the word love in the Old Testament is written in the Bible, it's ahava, which means to give. So heart bait, what you're saying, you gave a gift. You wanted to give it to others. You also wanted to give it to yourself, which is love. You, you love people. It's very clear by your message, very clear by your mission, very clear by even the populist group. If, if anyone's listening, go look at their website. It's amazing what they're able to do within companies. And yet... Here's, here's a, a question I have. Sure. More, more philosophical question is fear can also reside in the heart. Mm-hmm. So when people are heart-based leadership, but if they're fear-based, mm-hmm. how do you take a leader who is operating by fear and take them through that process so that they can truly operate through love and in love, which is where they're seeking in the first place, but maybe going down the wrong path to find it. Right. Yeah. Hey, great question. Let me, uh, I'm going to tell you a real brief story that I think you'll, you'll awesome. will resonate because I, I know you're an all pro dad. Awesome. Um, so a while back, um, I rem- my, my daughter wakes me up in my deep slumber and I remember she, let, she tapped me on the shoulder and I woke up and I see her little silhouette and <laughs> Uh, she says to me, she said, daddy, I'm scared. Mm. And I remember my natural intuition was to say, Hey, it's okay. Don't be scared. Right. But I didn't do that. Mm. Actually, I sat up and I looked at her and I said, Hey honey, it's okay to be scared. Mm. Thank you for telling me you're scared. And I held her hand and we went back to her room and I laid next to her and she went back to sleep. Mm. But the signal and the part of that story and the reason I tell you that story is I think is, you know, we can take that metaphor is, you know, too often we look at fear as a bad thing. And you and I both know that it's hiding something else. Yes. We're all afraid of something. Yes. And I believe that we as leaders who have recognized that need to take a different role and encourage these other leaders who may feel that way and tell them, say, hey, it's okay to be scared. Thank you for telling me because that builds that bravery and that courage for them to tell you the next time that they're afraid. Hmm. That's beautiful. So first of all, that is such a beautiful model 
uh, the, you know, have you heard the term gaslighting? I have. Yeah. So I don't know how or when it first developed, but to tell someone don't be what they feel is it, even though it's not intentional, it's culturally, we have culturally become a society that will gaslight our own children, our peers, right. our friends, our co It's like, no, that what you're experiencing doesn't exist or, you know, and mm-hmm. that's a beautiful model. What you said is, Hey, yes, I hear you. It's okay. And then, so is that the model you teach business leaders? I mean, how does that translate? Cause I, I love this model and, and maybe backing up, I believe how the business community treats their employees is how a society goes. And so in the Bible, when people like churches quote this narrative all the time, where, uh, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But I say, it's not where you give. That's certainly part of it, but it's where you get it from. And so our hearts are actually tied to our place of employment and how the business community treats their employees. It determines how an employee goes home and treats their family, treats their child. The child kicks the neighbor dog. The neighbor dog bites the other kid. The kid goes home. Go, you know, the ripple effect is negative. So how do we get it? How, do, how does the narrative start within companies to shift the leadership into a place of acknowledgement and authenticity so that they can stop gaslighting and, and start healing uh, their cultures. Yeah. Hey, a lot of great stuff in that, in that summary and that question, Lucas. Um, well, I think first and foremost, I think what I would initially uh, share is like, I believe like you that most of it is unintentional mm-hmm. and that these great business leader, these great men and women that are doing their best trying to provide for their families. Um, I believe that most people, if they knew a better way, would do it. Mm. And however, people also do what people see, right? There's been a lot of people for a long time that have had that authoritative, that very directive, that, you know, that modeling that the, of these leaders that aren't being authentic, yeah. that, you know, that believe the alpha myths that the leadership chain is the IQ chain and hmm. I have a term I call ROE, like, you know, incredible return on ego. It's like nobody wins. <laughs> when you have that, right? So let's good. pretend for a moment that we can't, like, we can only do so much about that, right? You can't boil the ocean. Right. However, here's how I would directly, my, like my philosophical approach has been pretty simple. And my leadership philosophy is this, and that we all struggle but every struggle teaches us something that's the gift and leadership is sharing those gifts with others. Now translating that to the business world, here's what I would encourage leaders to, 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 to self-assess is like, okay, let's take for a moment, whatever business you're in, you want to have a great brand, right? Let's regardless of what problem you solve for the world. Right. I don't think there's a business leader out there that wouldn't, that would disagree with that. Hmm. Okay. Well, what is the brand? The brand is a lagging indicator of the strength of your culture because the stronger the culture, mm. the better the brand. Yeah. Okay. So then let's look at the culture, right? What is the culture and what is the essence of it? Well, let's break that down a little bit. Culture comes from the Latin word cultus, which means to care. Hmm. That's and as cool. a leader how do you show your people you care? Well, fundamentally, every interaction that you have 
you have to do one thing. You as a leader, the most valuable asset that you will ever own as a leader or as an entrepreneur, as a human, as a father, is trust. Hmm. Every interaction that you have with your people should somehow, some way, build that trust. Hmm. And that's all culture is. It's your cumulative interactions and the trust that it builds, which shows your people how much you care for them. In other words, I'll often ask leaders, do you, what are you doing to intentionally show your people that you want more for them than from them? Isn't that the essence of caring for somebody? Yeah, that's good. Right? So, you know, uh, like I'm systematically breaking it down. Uh, and I know you asked about the model, but that's how my brain works uh, based around my philosophical uh, approach. And that's what I've done my best effort to do in building my organization, Pivulus Group. I've been imperfect. I've made more mistakes than we could possibly cover on this uh, podcast. Yeah. I put a lot of those in a very unvarnished, transparent manner in my book with all the lessons. But it's like all it takes is that desire to make the choice that, hey, look, I want to lead with my heart and my mind. Hmm. And I think that's the impact. The, the people you lead will go home and be a better father or a better mother. Yes. Or a better sister yes. or a better friend at yes. the end of the day. It's that's, not that complicated. That's right. And that's the ripple effect. That that's is the ripple effect. I, I really the whole title of this podcast being the Golden Rule Revolution. I I I consider myself a revolutionary and <clears throat> that I do want to see society change. However, I reject the notion that the only or most effective revolution is through the means of violence. And so I say, look, you want to be a revolutionary. That's great. Treat people like people, be kind to people because the ripple effect is, is unchanging. And I use the example that a slave trader, he was a second generation slave trader and a captain of two slave ships. He bought and sold countless number of slaves. And one day his ship goes down outside of West Africa and another slave owner rescues him. And he, the rescued slave owner thinking that he is going to be free because he's a white man is sold as a slave to the Africans. And he's a slave there to this tribe for close to a year. He then has a radical transformation realizing, Oh, I, you know, this is a grave evil. What have I done? goes back to London, becomes a preacher, one of the leading abolitionist voices in all of Great Britain, this little stone church, William Wilberforce, who eventually becomes the leading voice in parliament as a little boy sits in this church and hears this man named John Newton preach against the evils of slavery. And John Newton happened to write the most famous or arguably the most famous melody ever written, which is Amazing Grace. And had that ripple of like how he changed led to William Wilberforce being the sole voice for many years in parliament. And that is a positive ripple effect. And think of the, I think most people we think just because we don't see the results doesn't mean we're not making the impact. We always make an impact, whether it's positive right. or negative, we're always either uplifting or tearing down. Undoubtedly. I couldn't agree with you more. Like that, that's a goosebump story there that yeah. all happened with 
the modeling that we should show a kid, yes. a young, young man or young woman that is watching. Yes. They're watching. That's right. That's and, right. And, and so we've wait. kind of, kind of changed my life. And I agree with you, right? It's, you know, that's the violence. That's the easy choice. Yes. You know, like when you're driving to, on the freeway and someone cuts you off, like flipping them the bird, that's the easy choice. Right. <laughs> assuming that, hey, assuming that, hey, maybe they just got a call and one of their children got hurt mm. or wow, maybe, you know, we're all one phone call away from being on our knees. Maybe yes. they just got that call. Mm. So, you know, like that right there, that takes real courage and and that's real leadership there mm. versus, you know, taking the easy route. That's what violence is. So I couldn't agree with you more. Mm, that's beautiful. It's all so um, what you just said is it's compassion. I always I, I talk to so many different types of people and in never, I lead these men's retreats and I just finished um, weekend two of this, this program that I lead with the men. And I talk about politics being a, it's a fool's game. It's the only thing that you have control of in politics is whether you vote and whether you share your voice. The rest, the results, let it go because there's no control over it. But, but it's like a drug that constantly is feeding society mm-hmm. and, and creating this voracious need to indict another person. And what I say specifically, and it's really easy to talk about how much people hate Donald Trump, but my question to them, to anyone, and I ain't vote for him, I'm not pro him, it doesn't matter. What I am saying is, if I grew up in his house, how can I say I'd be any different than he is? Mm. I cannot. I can't say I am, if I went, if I grew up with that name and that pressure and who knows the, the, his story, I can't say I'd be any different. And it's the same. What you're saying is we're driving on the road. If I got that call, I would cut people off. How would I be any different? And so it is having that true sense of compassion for humanity. Um, and that's why I'm so, I'm so honored to have you on this show because this is the message that needs, we, I believe we're coming to a tipping point where this narrative as the pendulum swings and society wants to pull us into this craze, Mm -hmm. the narrative that you're sharing, the narrative of this podcast and others, there's countless others. When the crazy happens where everyone's like, what's going on? I think the messages of like, hold the course, treat people well, love people. Those are the messages that will be seen. And then I think gravitated to Undoubtedly. And that we need to be the stream. The stream always wins. We may not see the immediate effects of that, but Hey, let's keep eroding. Let's keep chipping away at it. And that's, we're on a similar journey to where we know it's going to be hard, but Hey, isn't anything worthwhile uphill? So let's just keep at it. Right. Stream always wins. Stream always wins. I think anyone that would look back, uh, the river that goes through the grand Canyon is the Colorado river, I believe. Right. Yes. I would say the Colorado River is winning. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, you know, at, like at some point in time, that canyon <laughs> wasn't that canyon. So, I see t shirts with that somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, well, if it helps someone, that's great. You know, just do something good with it. Uh, be like the Colorado River. <laughs> that's it. Be like the Colorado River. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Lucas, I had. Um, 
I had an experience when I was 17 and, you know, I think brings to life the essence of your message. Uh, would you mind if I told please, that story? Please, please. Um, you know, when I was 17, my brother and I, we were on a return trip home from a basketball game. And along the way, the team stopped for dinner and everybody unloaded off the bus. <laughs> my kids are knocking on the it's window. We're all pro dads, right? In my office and, and yeah, the kids are exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, every, uh, when we stopped for dinner, everybody unloaded off the bus. Mm. Except for me and my brother, you know, being one of 13 kids, we didn't have the means to play sports and afford dinner. Mm. And we were very accustomed to being on that bus. We were well beyond the embarrassment. Our parents were doing the best they could. Well, a few moments after the team unloaded, one of the dads to the other player steps on board the bus. And he walked towards the back of the bus and he razzed me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. <laughs> and then he said something to me, Lucas said, I will always remember. He said, Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner so that you can join the rest of the team. Hmm. Nobody else has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid just like you in the future. Hmm. And... I will never forget how I felt in that moment. And hmm. I remember stepping off that bus and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life outside of having the desire to raise my hand a year from there. Hmm. But I knew regardless of what I chose to do, I knew why. Hmm. I would somehow, some way, figure out a way to create something that would allow me to pay forward that kind act to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. And the interesting part of that story that I think fits right into this exchange that we just had is, uh, you know, when people ask me how come it had such a big and profound impact on me, of course, there was the narrative of what was going on with my family and the intergenerational poverty and so forth. But there was something different about this man that stepped on board the bus. You see, he was a real successful businessman in the community. And the narrative that I told myself was that, hey, men like him, they don't see kids like me. Hmm. But with one act of kindness, not only did he show me that I was wrong, he taught me that the single most important part of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. Hmm. And even more than that, like at that point in time, the biggest struggle that I had was I wanted my story to matter and I didn't know if it ever would. Hmm. Well, you fast forward many years from that moment. And after I started my company and that, that moment became the invisible force that drove me. And it's why I started my company. So cool. Yet I had never told this man. I call him, this was many years later. And I tell him, and it was a special phone call. And I could tell he was deeply touched. We both shed some awesomeness. Yeah. And yeah. We, it was a, like, I'll, it was a real special moment for me. And a few days later after that call, Lucas, I get a letter from him. And in that letter, he says to me, he says, Hey, yo, Bobby, thank you for calling me and telling me, you know, the bus story. Is, mm. uh, I'm not afraid to admit to you how many tears I shed before and after that call. Mm. You made me feel like my life had mattered. 
Wow. And wow. think about that. He is kind act changed the course for me. Me telling him what his kind act for me made him feel like his life has mattered. So we all play our part in this game of compassion. If our narrative is, so good. if our narrative is, hey, they don't care. Well, do you really know? Like Mr. Teague didn't tell anyone he came on board the bus and bought me dinner, right? right. A lot of people didn't know about that. Right. Because for many years, I didn't have the courage. I started my company. It wasn't until 10 years in that I actually told my company that story. It was raging like an inferno in, in me, but I didn't have the courage as a leader to share that story. And once I did though, it transformed my company into a community. And it oh. just erupted this kindness from one another because we started openly talking about these kind of things. And like, it matters. We have to do these things. Yes. And kindness and compassion, it changes lives. Yes. And, you know, sometimes we don't know the lives that other people are changing, regardless of what our beliefs are. That's right. So, I mean, thank you for letting me share that. But it's, it's so important that, you know, these great listeners that you have, we all do our part to pay forward the gifts from our struggles and those kind acts. And we tell these people because you never know. He had no idea that it would some t someday ignite me to create this large company that's sending kids to school and helping veterans and stuff. And, you know, it, like he would have never known. And he didn't know until I called him. So cool. Like, that's what life's all about. Wouldn't you that's agree? Right. Like at the end of the day, we all want our story to matter. That's right. And had he taken the credit when you got off the bus, had he said, I'm going to buy you, you know, that would have been the end of it. You would have gotten a meal. And, but that true sense of giving you guys and not shaming and loving. And that is such a. Yeah. He wanted, he, it is. He like, he wanted more for us yes. than he wanted from us. Yes. All he said was, hey, do it someday for another great kid just like you on this bus. Mm. Like, I can't tell the story without awesomeness boiling up in my eyes and yeah. hair on my arm standing up. Like, yeah. I'm so incredibly grateful for that kind act. It changed my life. Mm. And so, yeah, kindness will change lives more impactfully than violence will. Yes. Brother, how can people connect with you? Because I'm going to ask everyone listening, I'm the probability that you have experienced something very similar or that you are either on the receiving end or on the giving end um, is very high. And so I'm going to ask you to follow up with this and share your stories. But Bobby, how can people connect with you if they want to get to know you more, hear your book, read your book, connect, just connect with you. Yeah, I, I, man, nothing would please me more. You know, the book's The Gift of Struggle, and it launched in June. It's uh, getting some exciting momentum. I'm excited for the feedback I'm getting. Uh, my website's bobby-herrera.com, and they can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also uh, on Instagram and Twitter, and that's at Bobby Herrera PG. So, awesome. I'll put you know, all that in the show notes so people can yeah, that's great. It, click on it and um, – and, you know, I, 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 great for me is that, you know, I want to start a student of struggle revolution like yourself and, Love it. you know, have our struggles connect us and reframe how we view it. 
and let's view it as a source of empowerment so we can help that person that needs the help that we want to give them. That's right. That's, you're creating heroes because hero, the hero's journey is they were at a place. They knew they were meant to be somewhere else. They experienced hardship and overcame that hardship to finally be where they always felt they were supposed to be. And no one cares about a hero that didn't overcome anything. Right. <laughs> no right. one listens to a leader that doesn't share the struggle. Yeah. That's a boring movie to watch. We will walk out of that <laughs> yeah, theater, totally. right? It's like, totally. you know, it's like, is there anything else on? Like, I want to see something get blown up or yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I right. want to see someone lose all their money, like unexpectedly. You know, that's like, right. That's right. That's the stuff we want to see anyway. So let's share it. Let's talk about it. That's right. Everybody struggles. It's the one unifying factor is everyone struggles. Everyone, no one escapes this earth without some sort of pain, trauma, failure, disappointment, rejection, loss. Yeah. And sequentially, it always comes before transformation. Like when you think about it, you must go through struggle, pain, and suffering to get the wisdom, right? So I'll often say the long way is a shortcut. Mm, that's good. Yeah. This is good, man. I'm going to listen. I always listen back to the episode when, when it goes live. Uh, but I'm going to listen back to this. I know a few times. This is a lot. You've given some really good nuggets. Uh, a company uh, into a community. That is a, that's such a beautiful concept. The long way is the shortcut. It's a son. You are a father. You shall be. <laughs> That's um. It's just beautiful, and I'm honored to have you on, brother. Thank you. Uh, I'm grateful you reached out to me, and I love the good you're doing, and I'm here to help you any way that I can too. So Thanks. thank you. Thanks, brother. Well, what an amazing man, Bobby Herrera. If you in any way relate to this share your story reach out to me lucasmack.com you can email me at lucas at lucasmack.com message me share your story with bobby i'm going to put his contact information in the show notes what a beautiful concept a uh what do you say a company into a community that is such a beautiful you have the power whether you're a business leader or simply um uh, an employee at any level in a company, you have the authority, you have the power, and you actually have the influence to make that difference. So I am standing with you and encourage you to not only make that impact, but to share your stories of impact with us so that we can encourage other people. I'm so honored to have Bobby on. Thank you, Bobby. And I'm honored that you have joined me in this journey of treating people like people and nothing less. My name is Lucas Mack. I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode.